Well, good morning. My name is Steve. I've been here a few times now. I'm uh, one of the pastors at InTown Church in Portland, and um, who knew Eric couldn't wait to get to Texas? I guess he's got an appointment to try on some cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat or something, but um, it's very happy to come and fill in for him. That was, you know, you can, I, it wasn't funny. I know, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, it's great to be uh, here with you guys again and uh, in, in worship with you, and I, I do hope um, that those of you that are fathers enjoy your Father's Day. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 15 this morning. And so let me read our our text for us, and I'll pray for us, and we'll jump right in. If I move around a little bit, can you guys hear me still? Is that okay? Yeah? Midland? All right. I'm not going to move around, apparently. I'll just do this. This is Genesis chapter 15, the Old Testament reading. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two and laid them apart, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there. And they shall be oppressed for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, And it was dark. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this morning what it means that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, 
I pray that even if it's for the first time, but also if it's for the hundredth time, that if we have wandered away from faith, if we have found life to be so full of turmoil and distress that we have not been able to trust that you are God and that you are good, I pray that through your word and through your table, we would be convinced again that you love us deeply, that you have revealed yourself to us and shown us mercy. Jesus, come and speak to us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, there's an Italian uh, film called Life is Beautiful, and Roberto Benini plays a man named Guido, who's a, a Jewish-Italian bookshop owner. And it's this, it starts out as this really great love story. He, he meets this woman named Dora, and they fall in love and get married, and then they have a son, and they call him Joshua. But Joshua grows up in the shadow of World War II in Europe, and eventually Guido and Joshua are sent to a concentration camp. But it's in the camp that Guido's vivid imagination uh, works to shield Joshua from the horror of the concentration camp, the horror of their present situation. So what he does is he convinces his son that they're actually playing a very complicated game and that the first person to reach a thousand points or whatever it is is going to get to have their very own tank. They'll ride on a military tank and it'll be theirs and that's what happens to the winner. And so what he convinces him of is, is that everything within the camp is part of the game. And so you have to do chores. You have to do all of this really hard labor because that's how you earn points. And you can't complain because if you complain and you stumble and you try to lay around, you're going to lose points. Oh, and guess what? The Nazi guards are really angry. Why? Because they're playing the game too and they want to win. They're trying to beat you. It's important to stay chipper. Eventually, it's Joshua's trust in his father's story that leads to his salvation. The Americans are on their way, and, and Guido uh, instructs Joshua to hide until the camp is evacuated and the Americans have come, because the Nazis are realizing that, that they're about to be overrun, and so there's all sorts of turmoil, and they're killing whoever they can find. But Guido hears that Dora is actually in the camp, and so he goes to look for her after telling Joshua to hide, and on his way to look for her, he's caught by one of the guards, and they're going to march him to the spot of execution. And Guido realizes that he is going to walk right past where Joshua is hiding, where Joshua can see out. And so if he walks like a defeated man about to go to his death, he knows that Joshua will come out from hiding and he'll be killed as well. And so instead, he walks like a clown to his own death so that Joshua will stay hidden, that Joshua will continue to trust that this is a game. And he does. He stays hidden until the Americans come, and then guess what? He gets to ride on a tank. Our story in Genesis this morning is one in which the objective reality is one of bleakness, barrenness, and dried-up, dying desert. Abram and Sarah have left everything they ever knew. They left home, left family, and struck out for nowhere, all because Abraham was hearing voices in his head telling him to get out of Ur, telling him that despite the fact that Sarah's womb was as dry as the desert they'd been tramping through, they would have a son. They would have an heir, offspring. And all along in the Genesis narrative, Abram doesn't say a word in response to this voice. He just goes. He just obeys and believes. But as time drags on, having children goes from unlikely to impossible. And home is a million miles away, and death is right next door. But much like what happened to Joshua in the midst of the Nazi concentration camp, 
Abraham is hearing this alternate story in his mind. It's a story that doesn't really correspond with reality at first, and it seems like a fiction. And so the question that, that's before us is, is the question that was really before Abram, and, and the, the narrative of Genesis presents it to us in this story. And the, and the questions are two sides of the same coin. Can Abraham trust the story that God is telling him, that he really will have offspring? And can the God of the story be trusted? So we're going to work this story sort of like a scratch it. And as we keep scraping off film, we're going to see a picture of faith emerge that I think may be a bit surprising for some of us. First, I just kind of want to give you the overall shape of the story, and then we'll dive into some of the details. The narrator here has actually pushed together two episodes that echo each other and fill each other out. And so here's sort of the the literary breakdown of the episodes, okay? The first episode takes place at night. God comes and makes a promise to Abram with an I am statement. And Abram responds with complaint and questioning. And then God reassures him with symbols. In this case, it's the stars of the sky symbolizing the offspring that will come through Abram. He will be given the son of promise. And then we're told Abram responds by trusting God. And in the second half of the story, God comes at sunset in the evening, and he makes a promise to Abram with an I am statement. And Abram responds with questioning. And God reassures him with symbolic acts. This time, he cuts a covenant with him to assure him that he will be given the land of promise. And we're told that Abram responds by trusting God. So as we work through the details of the story, we'll do so by looking at the characters, the covenant, and the crumbly concreteness of faith. So if we had been looking at Genesis all the way along, we would see that for the first few chapters, it's a very bird's-eye view of the entire universe, and it narrows all the way down from looking at all of humanity, all of the world, to just one man, one family, and it's the family of Abram. And from here on out, the narrator is going to focus on this family, and this family is actually the story of the rest of of the Bible, coming from this one guy and his wife. And as I've already alluded to, God tells Abram to leave his hometown and to set out to a land that God would give him. God tells him that he'll make Abram into a great nation and the entire world will be blessed through his family, through his offspring. And Abram says nothing. He just sets out. And things aren't easy. His no-good nephew comes along with him and causes trouble at every turn. Abram finds himself being dragged into wars that have nothing to do with him. And he's trudging along with this entire household through a desert, getting older and older. His wife is getting older and older, and no offspring has come. But the narrator also hints to us that Abram isn't just some guy. See, this is the first time in the Hebrew Scriptures that the formula, the word of the Lord came to, is used. And every other time after this time, it's used to describe a prophet. Whoever the word of the Lord comes to is a prophet, which in fact, the the writer of Genesis will tell us later explicitly that Abram is a prophet. But this is the first time it's used, and what what he's trying to do is hint to us that Abram is someone special. He, He is getting a revelation from God that is different than the people around him. He is a prophet. We're going to uncover more about who Abraham is when we look at his faith in just a moment. So now we'll turn to the character of God. The character of God, whose name is, is Yahweh, is presented as both personal and enigmatic. In the covenant scene, he appears as fire and smoke and dreadful darkness, which is exactly as he will appear at Sinai 
centuries later to Abram's descendants, when they come out of the land, and in the thing that God just prophesied to Abram that we read about, when his descendants come out of the land of slavery and he brings them to his mountain, he appears to them as fire and smoke and dreadful darkness. As he leads the people through the desert, years in the future, he does so by leading them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. These revelations are ultimately mysterious, but they point out something to us that is very key about the nature of God, and that is this. He is self-revelatory. He illuminates the things that orbit around his essence with fire, but he is also confounding. The deeper you get pulled into the light of his being, the more confounding he becomes, the smokier and the darker things get. The more his fire illuminates, the more his smoke and darkness obscure and confound. God is no one's parlor trick. He is entirely other, which means that you and I have more in common with someone like Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer than we do with God. And that's why it is so staggering when we realize that he actually comes and speaks with Abram. And the NIV translation of in, in verse 4 of, then the word of the Lord came to him, it has actually weakened the meaning of the text because what the text actually says is, look, look, the word of the Lord came to Abram. It's even more staggering when we consider the nature of the covenant that God makes with Abram and the nature of Abram's response of faith. The covenant-making scene in this story is incredibly mysterious. It's apparent that it ties in with something that Abram would have been familiar with. And so there are some clues from broader ancient Near East uh, history and culture that we can pick up on to help us understand what's happening here. And, and one way to, to sort of understand a little bit more of what's going on is, is the phrase that's used to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. And you see that reflected in, in the cutting of the animals as Abram cuts them in half and places them apart. And so this is what would happen. In this culture, when, when two parties wanted to make a covenant, a, a solemn binding pact, a promise together, they would do something like this. They would slaughter the appropriate animals, which is a sign that they were willing to make this promise even at their own debt. Animals were incredibly value, valuable at this time, and so they were willing to make this promise at cost to themselves. And they would set the pieces apart from each other, and oftentimes the blood would pool in between the pieces, and each party of the covenant would walk through the pieces in the blood, essentially saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal, may this happen to me. I have the blood of this covenant on my feet. And I realize that this may seem quite gruesome to our modern sensibilities, but the symbolism of what was happening here was quite serious. Just because people were ancient doesn't mean they were barbaric. They understood that this was gruesome. That's the point. It's that serious. That's how seriously people would take these sorts of covenants because essentially what they're saying, as I said, is that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this be my fate. The other party could legally demand that I be cut in half if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. In this case, the particulars of the covenant surround the inheritance of land. God is covenanting to Abraham that his land that has been promised to him will indeed be handed down. And the issue that Abram's upset about, the fact that land is meaningless if you don't have heirs to inherit it, will be dealt with. God tells him that he will give him a child from his own loins, not an adopted heir. And the offspring of Abram will come to inherit the land. But do you notice what's happening here in this covenant scene? 
Abram is in the deepest of slumbers. The phrase that's used here to describe his sleep is the same phrase that's used to describe Adam when God puts Adam to sleep to pull out Eve and to, to create Eve out of his own body. Here Abraham or Abram is one of two primary players in the covenant, and he's just sitting back watching it all happen. He's not involved at all. As he drifts into the darkness of God's presence, all we see is the fire and smoke of God pass through the pieces of flesh. God metaphorically gets the blood of the covenant on his feet, while Abram stays clear. Now, to say much more about this covenant would be to enter into speculation. As I said, what is pictured here for us is is just a hazy description of ancient things that have long been lost to the memory of mankind. But what we can say is this. In making himself the party to be held accountable, God has made Abram's faith the only guarantee needed. And what is unfolding before us here is sort of one of the first pieces of this continuing drama that God is not content to allow his wayward creation to continue on its way, doing their own thing, causing destruction everywhere they turn. No, he is barreling after them with full force, aligning his fate with theirs. This covenant is a foreshadowing of the day when eventually God will take on flesh in Jesus who takes on the death of the world, essentially saying to us, I will hold up both ends of our covenant, mine and yours. I take on your punishment for breaking the covenant. And the only thing required of humanity in this covenant is faith. It's trust. It's trust that God will make provision for our failure. The Apostle Paul spent a great deal of time in more than one epistle to the early church fleshing out what it means that Abram was justified by faith, that he was considered righteous, that he was made right, reconciled, brought back into right relationship with God simply by believing, just by having faith, just by trusting. And it's an incredible doctrine that is absolutely central to the Christian religion, and I'm not going to talk about it today. It's a great doctrine that we absolutely need to understand well. But for this morning, I, I, I want to stick with the text that we have, the text of Abraham, and and talk more about his faith, because I think if we see how crumbly and concrete it is, we're going to find it instructive for how our own faith could look. As I said in the beginning, Abram and Sarah have been promised a child, but they are still living in a world marked by barrenness. And up until now, when God tells Abram something, that's it. There's no conversation. He just gets up and goes. He believes it. He does whatever God says. He just acts in faith without saying anything in response. But now you can almost hear the tension in his voice as God comes to him again and says, don't be afraid. I'll make your reward great. What could you possibly give me? He says, I'm still childless. And when I die, I'm going to have to sign over my estate to one of my servants. And then there's a pause. And God doesn't say anything back. He just waits quietly to let Abram get everything out. And like a lot of us do when we get really angry, we end up just sort of repeating the same thing over and over. And so Abram's just said, I'm going to die childless and have to give my estate to to one of my servants. And then he says again, you haven't given me any children. I'm going to have to give my estate over to my slave because I don't have a son. 
And that is in verse 4. That's when the text says, look, but look, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Eleazar won't be your heir. A son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Come outside. Look at the stars. Try to count them. This is what your offspring will be like, countless. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It changed his standing with God. And then God says to him again, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And Abram responds by saying, how can I know? How can I know that I'm going to take possession of this land? I've been wandering for a long time. And that's when God responds by cutting that covenant with him. So what's happening here? How did Abram go from just silently believing and obeying to questioning and complaining about everything? You know, it's actually been suggested that Abram's complaints in this text are so palpable that someone came back later and added in the part about him having faith just so he wouldn't get the wrong idea about a guy who's supposed to be our hero. Okay, that's not actually what happened. The the text is true. The text is accurate. But that's how baffling it is that he can complain so loudly. It seems like whenever he opens his mouth, he reveals the fact that he doesn't really believe. Or does he? You see, if faith is just a quiet pietism, something that can hide away from the parched desert terrain of life, then perhaps Abram really isn't believing. Or it could be that our conceptions of faith simply aren't robust enough. If we take this story at face value, I think what we'll see is that, as Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, said, complaint and faith are not antithetical. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. Friends, faith is not a dance through a flowery meadow. Who, who needs faith for that? Faith is shakily putting one foot in front of the other, walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Faith is noisy. noisy. Faith involves fighting, wrestling, and oftentimes it involves anger and impatience. And I think a lot of us have this crazy notion left over from our British heritage of keeping a stiff upper lip and keeping calm and carrying on that somehow emotional expression is wrong. Somehow emotional expression is not faith. But what Abraham shows us is that it is in this very emotive outburst that faith finds its footing. Faith shouts back because it's counting on the promise of God. Silence in the face of delayed promises is not virtue. It's a sign of despair. It's a sign that we don't truly believe that God can prove us wrong, and so we simply stop talking to him. Notice also that faith is incredibly earthy. Do you see that all of the promises that Abram is taking hold of are incredibly physical? A physical child, a physical plot of land. Apparently, if you want to enter into relationship with this God, with the covenant-making God through faith, you've got to be willing to get dirty because this God deals in dust. All along, the mission of God has been to have a place in which he will dwell with his people. And in order to get what he wants, he eventually wraps himself in dust and flesh, and descends into death. And now we are called to faith. We are called, like Abram and Sarah, to respond, not to anything we can see in the world, but to a word which promises to overcome the barrenness of this place.
I don't know many of you personally, but, but I would imagine that some of you potentially are dealing with literal, actual barrenness. And Father's Day may be a, a very painful reminder of that. Others of you may be dealing with a, a more metaphorical loss of a child or a sibling or a parent who has just turned their back to you or turned their back to Jesus. Some of you are wrestling through the desert patches of life, and you've been a, a person of faith for years, and all of a sudden, the darkness is all around you, and you can't see out. Some of you perhaps have sort of moved through life on the outskirts of faith. You've never really been able to trust that Jesus is God, that Jesus brought resurrection into a dying world. And the, and the answer for all of us, whether we've been people of faith for years or for the first time ever right now, the answer is don't be afraid to make noise. Don't be afraid of the dirt. Don't be afraid when the concrete of your faith starts to crumble. You see, the, the answer to the question, can Abram trust God and his story, is yes. It's overwhelmingly yes. God proves that to Abram by cutting a covenant with him. And we have that proven to us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we will celebrate in a moment as we come to this table. And we cannot be afraid to make noise and watch our faith break open because faith is a deep trust that even when trust itself begins to crack, that God will remain faithful that his promise of new life in the future will eventually collide with the death and barrenness of the present. You see that we are standing as people caught between times. We're living in, in the present age at one hand and in the future age in the other. And it feels at times as if we're being pulled apart. And this too is a part of faith. And in fact, the way that our text ends, as God sort of goes on and on about what awaits Abram's descendants, that sort of thing is mirrored throughout Scripture. That is that faith, being put back in right relationship with God, involves suffering. It almost always involves suffering because we find ourselves grasping onto God's promises on the one hand and the barrenness of life around us in the other. And we find ourselves taking the shape of our Savior. So we're going to confess our faith together in a moment. And we're going to confess our faith in a person, in, in a personal God who, though he is shrouded in darkness and cloud, has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And our response of faith is not some big trumpet blasting, lights going, overly overwhelming ordeal. Sometimes that happens. But for most of us, faith is going to involve putting one foot in front of the other to come down to this table and taste the way God keeps his covenants. If you're willing and you're able, would you stand and confess your faith along with me? This confession of faith is the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the oldest confessions that the church has. It's a reminder to us that we hold this faith in common with Christians everywhere who have gone before us and will come after us. Let's confess our faith together. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's greet one another in the Lord.